Home Church of Grace Christian Fellowship in Cortland. Uh, I'm more specifically from Moravia, but no one ever seems to know where that is, so I always just kind of list the nearest geographical area that I can uh, point out. Uh, in my day job, I'm actually a teacher, so I uh, teach high school. I have had the privilege of teaching American history uh, to high school juniors and seniors for the past six years. Uh, and then this year, I transitioned into a new job uh, teaching ninth grade special education. Uh, so a bit of a different, uh, different path. Uh, as you can guess, it comes with a lot of challenges uh, day to day. Uh, but it's definitely a blessing to be able to be used by God uh, in such a critical need area. Now, one of the things that you need to know about high school students is that most of the time, most of them don't really care all that much about school. It might be a little bit of a surprise to you, but it's true, I assure you. Uh, sure, many of them, uh, like myself, you know, back in the day, I always wanted to do really well, but uh, everybody's always looking for an opportunity to either sidetrack the teacher or get out of doing their work. Uh, it just comes with the territory. So in these situations, uh, teachers have this phrase that they always refer, return to, uh, and that phrase is three letter or three words: "Get to work." I personally, uh, every day, use this phrase many times a day. Uh, I tried to count one day and I lost track. Uh, I find myself saying things like, "Hey, will you please settle down and get to work?" Or uh, another common one that's probably heard in schools across America. Get off TikTok, put your phone away, and get to work. And then what might be my personal favorite, one that I've actually uh, been able to say to multiple students, I'm not sure how, uh, throughout the years, can you please, please stop playing your ukulele and get to work? Now, all humor aside, we're going to talk a little bit about work today, as the slide shows. Uh, as it turns out, the Bible has a lot to say about work. In fact, the King James Bible uh, says uh, the word work or works over 400 times. Despite all the mentions of work in the Bible, things don't really seem to add up when you start looking at some of the different uh, passages. I'll give you an example. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the Apostle Paul writes about salvation and work. And he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works. To summarize, Paul is saying that Christians are not saved by any works that we have done. We put our faith in Jesus, and he saves us through his grace, his love and favor that we don't deserve at all. In short, good works don't quite cut it. So, okay, doing good things can't save us from our sins. But just wait, things are going to get a little messy. In chapter 2 of the book of James, we see another passage about work. James is one of the brothers of Jesus, and he writes the following. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go, and be, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So let's get this straight. James is saying that your faith is dead if you don't have works that go along with it. But remember, Paul just said that works can't save you. 
So at first glance, it appears we have maybe a little bit of a contradiction on our hands. So who is correct? But maybe more importantly, do our works actually matter? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. You guys asked the best questions here. Now, we're going to dive a little deeper into what Paul tells the church in Ephesus uh, about work in our main scripture passage for the day. And hopefully we're going to answer all these questions and more along the way. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. It's in your message guide. Uh, if you've got your uh, Bibles with you, you can open those up. As we turn here, uh, we're going to see a couple things about, uh, about this passage. Paul's going to break down to the listener kind of the before and after of uh, their life as Christians. Uh, and then he issues what I think is one of the clearest explanations of the entire Bible of how salvation actually happens. And then he finishes up with a little bit of a practical thing of what we're supposed to do with it. But if you only take away one thing, the bottom line here for the next 30 minutes uh, is this. We didn't deserve it, but God saved us, and now we work for him. see that a couple times this morning, so if you don't get all those blanks in right now, that's okay. Uh, we're going to dive in starting with verses 1 through 3. So Paul writes in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay, that's a pretty crummy description that Paul just gave for us there uh, regarding our lives, am I right? He doesn't pull any punches here. Uh, we're going to break down piece by piece what Paul just said about us. The first piece, Paul said that we're dead in sin. Apart from God, we are spiritually dead. Uh, this is not really about a physical death, you know, living, breathing, walking around, uh, because even without a relationship with Jesus, we would still be physically alive. However, uh, what we're talking about here is more of a spiritual death. Uh, your spirit, I would say, is what kind of makes you, you. Uh, it is your thoughts, your dreams, your hopes, uh, your personality, all of that is your spirit. Unfortunately, apart from God, that part of a person, that spirit, is totally dead and worthless, even for those in the world who look like they're living full and vibrant lives. Uh, this a British theologian, his name was John Stott, uh, and he said this. He said, we should, not re we should not hesitate to reaffirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert a person may be, is a living death, and that those who live it are dead even while they are living. The cause of the spiritual death is our sin, which we would say is just the instance, the idea of missing the mark of what God has planned for us. Paul also said that we were following the world and Satan. Uh, he is super clear about where our allegiances lie before uh, we have kind of gotten out of this sin. Uh, the world's priorities don't line up with the priorities of God. And I don't think I need to explain too much to kind of drive that home. Uh, you realize that our world is full of wars and famine and death and
and horrible things that happen every single day. Uh, that is just what happens, right, in the world. Uh, when we're following the course of the world, that is what we're buying into, right? We're buying into what the world is selling. The world says things like this. It's all about me. I'm going to do what I can to make myself happy, and nothing else really matters. So many people out there in, uh, in our world buy into those ideas every day, as did every single Christian before they put their faith in Jesus. Before putting our faith in Jesus, uh, you followed Satan. That's who's being mentioned here as the prince of the power of the air. Uh, those living apart from uh, God are still following Satan by worshiping what the world has to offer. And the effects of that, like we just were talking about, is spiritual deadness. So everyone without Christ is dead. Now, there is some good news, though. Not only bad news this morning. You don't have to live like that anymore, right? If you have not yet decided to put your faith in Jesus, all of this can be part of your past with that one decision. Also, notice how Paul used past tense language throughout this entire section. I find that fascinating. We were dead in sin, but we aren't dead anymore, right? We once walked in the ways of the world, but we don't have to walk that way anymore. So, what changed? Well, we're going to turn our attention to verses 4 through 7 to find out. The Apostle Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he once loved us, even, while, or even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward Christ, us in Christ Jesus. Now, before we unpack this section, I want to just note those first two words. Those are transition words, right? But God, those are huge. Remember where we've been so far. We were spiritually dead, living sinful, selfish lives. But God, he changed all that. The big picture with verses 4 through 7 is that you have been saved by grace. God chose to save us. It was not anything that we deserved. It was not anything that we earned. But it was because of his character, right? His grace. Uh, his rich love and great mercy for us. What do you think Paul means when he talks about uh, God's mercy? Well, I wondered that same question. And so I looked it up online. Uh, as it turns out, there's a great online resource called gotquestions.org. If you've never looked at it, it's a fantastic uh, spot. They've answered over 700,000 uh, questions on biblical topics. Uh, and one of the questions that they answered was, what is the definition of mercy? In their response, they talk about certain things like uh, compassion. Uh, they say it's closely related to compassion. You see, when we were living lives apart from God, full of sin and brokenness, God had compassion for us. Mercy just simply means that God saw the broken state that we were in, and he chose to forgive us, even though, really, we deserved a lot worse. Because, remember, our bottom line here that we introduced earlier, we didn't deserve it, 
but God saved us, right? And now we work for him. So through his great mercy and love, God does a few things for those who put their trust in him. First, he makes us alive with Christ. That's a big part. This is a direct contrast to that spiritual death that we were just talking about, right? We were spiritually dead before we followed Jesus, but now we can be spiritually alive after that. Again, if you're here today and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, this is the promise that awaits you if you do. You get to make the transition from death to life. Your soul and spirit can be alive in an instant with Jesus if you just make that one choice to put your faith in him. Now, Paul reiterates this idea in another letter that he wrote, uh, this time to uh, the Colossians. Uh, he writes in chapter 2 of Colossians, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together in, with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, the truth is our sins, they carry a legal penalty, as it says in Colossians, right? In the book of Romans, it tells us in a famous verse that the penalty we deserve for our sins is death. But as he writes here, God makes us alive with him when we were once dead. And in doing so, he wipes out that penalty that we deserve. But things get even better. We've also been raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. Not only do we get to have this new, undeserved life in Christ, but we are elevated so much higher above the death that we deserve. We get to share in God's glory and inheritance both in this life and in heaven. Now, the question that comes up after hearing all this is why? Right? All these good things that are promised to us, an inheritance, a life uh, that's changed forever, uh, why would God do this for us if we didn't deserve any of it? Right? That question leads us to verse 7 uh, from Ephesians 2, uh, where we see the real reason why God is choosing to save us. Paul writes, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. John MacArthur wrote in his notes on Ephesians that while salvation is very much for the believer's blessing, it is even more for the purpose of eternally glorifying God for bestowing on believers his endless and limitless grace and kindness. The whole of heaven glorifies him for what he has done in saving sinners. Now, God is using his people, right, the people who believe in him, as sort of uh, case studies in salvation throughout history of the world. God's glory is demonstrated through our salvation, as well as the salvation of past and future generations of Christians. He gets to show the world that this grace, his love and favor that we don't deserve, right? It knows no bounds. Now, before we get into verse 8, where uh, salvation actually, we find out how salvation actually takes place, I want to pause here for just a minute and look at this guy, uh, Paul. 
uh, Paul has so far been kind of driving our story forward this morning. Uh, and it might be a little tempting to look at Paul and say, wow, this is a guy who, when he's calling me dead in Christ, and, or dead, not in Christ, but dead, right, uh, apart from Christ, uh, basically worthless, horrible, right? Wow, that guy, he must have it all together if he's going to tell me all those things. Wow. Uh, if you don't know, Paul actually turns out to be uh, one of the worst people, uh, according to the church's standards, uh, before he became saved. So he outlines his own brokenness in a letter that's written to Timothy, who was a close companion of his. Uh, Timothy actually became the pastor of the church in Ephesus shortly after uh, this letter was written to them. Uh, let's see what Paul has to say in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, starting in verse 12, Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see here, what Paul's telling us is that he was the foremost of all sinners, the absolute worst of all. Uh, he was an opponent of Christ, uh, even to the point of, if you've never read Acts, he actually was attempting to kill Christians and along for the ride while that was happening. Uh, but thankfully for Jesus, or thankfully for us, uh, and thankfully for him, uh, Jesus saved him through his grace. And the reason for his salvation, that it was it was really so that God could show his presence to unbelievers and use Paul as an example, right? If Jesus could save Paul, the absolute worst of all sinners, then he can save you too. He can save me. Uh, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've run from him throughout your life. So now that we've unpacked all that, uh, the before and after of God raising us up from the dead uh, to new life in Christ, we're going to see in verses uh, 8 and 9 how this redemption actually happened. So the quote that we began our study with uh, was these two verses. Uh, Paul writes here, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, in these two verses, we find, like I said, what I think might be the most concise and to-the-point statement in all the Bible of God's act of saving undeserved people uh, like you and me. Uh, we would generally call that the gospel, right? And while it's concise, uh, it still might be a little bit confusing, so we're going to break it down piece by piece. Uh, the first part here is that we are not saved by works. We are not saved by works. Now, this idea of salvation by works would, I think, if you polled the American people, uh, I think it would come up a lot, and I think it would be a popular idea. Uh, I'd venture a guess that most of us in this room 
uh, or maybe watching online have been guilty of thinking this at some point in our lives uh, or another, right? We say to ourselves things like, I think I'm doing a good job. I'm really trying hard and I'm trying to be a good person and that's gotta be worth something, right? Uh, I might slip up at times, but you know, I'm really just doing the best I can and the effort is the most important thing. And uh, maybe you've heard this before, God can't count any of those things against me, right? Now, if that's you this morning and you're here and you're believing those things, uh, trying to get there on your own, uh, I've got some bad news for you. It's not going to work. Those thoughts are deceiving, uh, just as the world is deceiving. Uh, specifically, we're so sinful and broken as humans that no amount of being a good person or doing good things is going to be able to get us to salvation. Just isn't going to cut it. We're broken beyond what any Band-Aid can cover, um, regardless of how hard we try to make it work on our own terms. So Paul's very clear here. Like we said, try as we might, we can't earn salvation. It's earned by, or it's not earned by works. So if we desperately need salvation, how can we get it? Well, the second part, uh, we are saved by grace. There's nothing in us that deserves salvation, like we said, from our sins. Uh, no amount of things that we've done to earn it. So when we receive this gift of salvation, it is really by God's grace alone. Grace is frequently described as uh, God's undeserved love and favor. Uh, God is choosing to save us from our sin, period. Nothing else really matters in the grand scheme of things. Uh, we didn't do anything to deserve it. We received it anyways, right? It's a beautiful thing. What a fantastic gift that is. Uh, and it was totally free of charge, by the way. Now, these ideas uh, run very counter to the culture that we live in here in America. Like I said, we want to work hard and get there, right? We want to get there on our own. Uh, oftentimes, America is described as this sort of thing called a meritocracy. Um, if you've never heard that term before, it just means the more you do, the more you get, right? So I work hard, I get money for working hard. If I work harder, I get more money, right? That's how we live in America. But that's, uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of what happens in America. But God's kingdom is very contrary to our way of life and our society. Uh, while hard work here in America and in our culture gets rewarded, hard work means absolutely nothing for salvation in the eyes of God. While we earn good rewards here on, on earth from what we do, uh, the reward of salvation cannot be earned. It's freely given by God uh, by grace. And the third part is through faith. So the one thing that unlocks this wonderful gift from God, that being our salvation uh, through his grace, uh, is our faith. Now, faith is just a big fancy word that we use that can be boiled down to a couple things. Uh, belief and trust. Hebrews 11.1 1 is a great definition of it. It says, uh, faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. Now, we have to take the step to believe that we can indeed be saved from our eternal death. And we have to trust that God alone, through Christ, can save us. 
doing so shows us that we have given up on the notion that we can get there all on our own just by doing good things. So again, if you're here this morning and you just haven't put your faith in Jesus, believing that he can save you, uh, just know that he wants to give you this undeserved gift of salvation through his grace. All you have to do is give up your efforts to get there on your own and just simply believe and trust in him. And I have a bonus thing for you out of this passage. The bonus is no boasting, okay? No boasting. The final part of verse 9 comes with a short disclaimer. Unless anyone thinks that they played any part in their salvation, uh, Paul very quickly wants to strike that notion down. He says, yes, you have to place your faith in Jesus to unlock this gift, but the gift was freely given by God, and it was unearned by us in any way, right? So the fact is, this salvation uh, would not be ours to get if God himself did not choose to give it to us. So, because we don't have any part in earning it, we can't boast about earning it. Now, I want to give you an example just to kind of show you how foolish it would be uh, for me to boast in God's gift of salvation, okay? So, I'll use a little sports analogy here. Uh, when football season rolls around, uh, I am a very devoted fan of the Miami Dolphins, okay? Uh I know it's probably not the most popular choice around these parts. Uh, it's not the most popular choice around my parts either, because we have the same parts. Uh, we live in upstate New York. It's not popular. Uh, but not ashamed to admit it, I'll willingly, uh, you know, at least I didn't wear my Miami Dolphins jersey. I could have done that. Um, I have a feeling the reception would have been a little less warm uh, if that happened. Anyways, uh, let's say, okay, just imagine with me, because I know this is not usually how this goes, okay? Uh, let's imagine with me, uh, I'm sitting down to watch one of their games on the Sunday afternoon, and it's going super well. They're absolutely crushing the Buffalo Bills, okay? <laughs> you got to know your audience. This is awkward. Uh, absolutely crushing the Buffalo Bills, which, I mean, who doesn't love to see that? So, uh the game ends, and here's where you know it's not exactly true. The game ends, the Miami Dolphins just won 45 to 7, okay? That's how I know it's not true, because they don't do that. Uh, however, okay, I pick up the phone, uh, and I call my dad and my brother. Both of them are devoted, diehard Buffalo Bills fans, okay? So I get it in my own family. I feel it, okay? So I pick up the phone. Undoubtedly, they just watched the same game that I did, right? But I'm going to give them a little little uh, razzing, I guess. So what do I do? I start hyping up my involvement in, uh, in this victory, okay? I say, oh, hey, did you see that interception that Josh Allen threw in the second quarter? No, no, not the first one. No, not the second, the third interception that Josh Allen threw, okay? You, you know that's true. Uh, yeah, I was screaming so loud from my basement that I think I really made the difference, okay? Oh, wait, did you see that pass that Tyreek Hill caught, that 70-yard touchdown pass? I was calling out the defense from my basement so loud that I think the Dolphins heard me, and they knew exactly how to exploit it. And then I go and I say something that's totally absurd. You know, I really think I made the difference out there with those guys today. I really think I helped. Now, how foolish is that whole thing, okay? Me saying all those things, how foolish is that? 
I can safely say that the impact that I had on that football game from the comforts of my couch in my basement was a solid 0.0%, right? I did nothing to win that game. And yet, here I was taking a lot of credit for it, even though uh, my dad and my brother had to endure the whole thing. Now, this is uh, really exactly what Paul is talking about uh, when he refers to boasting in God's gift of salvation. We did nothing to deserve it, nothing to earn it. So it would be that foolish for me to boast about it as if I had. So save the boasting and appreciate salvation for what it is, right? It's a free gift that we didn't deserve, but it was given from God by grace through faith. Now, we're going to turn our attention to verse 10 in our passage, and it's going to kind of be our final, final point here today. Uh, it leads us to the answers that we were searching for uh, at the beginning of our time together. Remember, we were talking about, you know, do, does, do works actually matter? Um, we were talking about uh, verses 8 through 9 from this section where it says that works can't save you. Uh, but then we also looked in James, right? And it said that works, uh, faith without works is dead. So do our works actually matter? Let's take a look at verse 10 and try to make some sense of it. It says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, which, or that we should walk in them. In this passage, we are being described as God's workmanship. But what does that actually mean? Uh, in the NIV translation, uh, the word used is handiwork. Similarly, the original Greek word that's used uh, is the root word from which we get the uh, updated word poem from. So uh, I don't think really saying that we are God's poem is really that helpful for me. Uh, I think it's kind of a bit of a narrow definition. So again, what does workmanship actually mean? Well, pastor and writer R. Kent Hughes uh, said this about workmanship. He said the best translation by far is his work of art, his masterpiece. We are God's works of art. I do not think there is, an, there is any more exalted description of a believer in all of Scripture. You and I are God's works of art, his masterpieces. So think about everything that God has created, right? Everything that we've ever come in contact with or seen, uh, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, our entire galaxy, right? All of that was created by God. But none of those things are his masterpieces. Only we are. That's an amazing thing. And as his masterpieces, we have been created for one important reason, to do good works. This sets us apart from any other masterpiece that humans can create. I mean, if you think about it, most works of art, most masterpieces that humans make, uh, what are they designed to do? They hang on a wall, right? Uh, I went to, uh, a couple years ago, I was able to go to this amazing art museum called the Art Institute of Chicago. I don't know if anybody's ever been there. Uh, it was an unbelievable experience. Uh, and I'm not really like a super big art guy, but it was a lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, it's home to a lot of our nation's favorite works. Uh, they have this work called American Gothic, which is uh, the old people standing there with a pitchfork. Uh, I think you probably know that one. Uh, there's another one called uh, Nighthawks by Edward Hopper, The Old Guitarist by Pablo Picasso, 
so many amazing works of art. However, even though these works of art are celebrated around the world, uh, they don't really serve that much of a practical purpose, right? This is what our human-created uh, works of art and masterpieces are, right? They are designed to hang safely on a wall. However, God's masterpieces, us, are designed for a different purpose. Uh, we are to do good works. Now, to illustrate this point a bit further, I brought a couple things uh, with me here. Um, you may have been wondering about them. Uh, there are a couple items that are special to me. They're a matching clay teapot and a mug. Um, it goes with a story. So in the spring of 2014, I was all set to graduate from uh, Houghton College, where I attended, um, and I was finishing up my final semester there. Uh, as it turns out, I had basically you know, gotten all of my credits out of the way, and I just had a couple required courses left to take. But uh, according to the state of New York, I had to have like a certain number of credits to be a full-time student and keep my financial aid. So I had to come up with a couple courses that I wanted to take. So I looked online, found a couple courses that I thought would be the most enjoyable to fill up my time with. Uh, and so I picked two courses. One was racquetball and one was ceramics, okay? So a little weird, but racquetball, racquetball was great, except I got pelted by racquetballs occasionally. Uh, so that put a damper on it. Uh, ceramics was amazing. Uh, it was one of the best classes I've ever taken. Uh, it was way more fulfilling than I had imagined it would be. Uh, and we made all sorts of items that year uh, or that semester uh, in our class that we got to keep. Uh, and these were a couple that I made uh, back, you know, back then and got to keep them. Uh, they are by no means masterpieces, but they're a couple of my favorites, and they were created really to serve a purpose, right? If you think about it, the purpose of a teapot is to fill it with water, heat it up on a stove, and then you can make tea with it, right? And the purpose of a mug is for me to hold that water until I drink it. So they have a job, right? It's pretty simple. But let's think for just a minute here. If these two things here can't do their job or don't do their job, are they still what they say they are? Is this teapot still a teapot if you can't actually use it to heat up water and make tea? Or is this mug still a mug if you can't actually use it to hold something and drink out of it? I don't know. Uh, another example that I've heard uh, is that of an apple tree. Okay, so picture this. You've got an apple tree in your yard. If you don't have one, congrats, you have one now. Uh, so you have an apple tree in your yard, okay? It's been there for years, growing apples faithfully every season, or every fall, right? Um, but then one year, stops growing apples, okay? You invite some friends over, and you say, hey, look, this is my apple tree, right? This is my beautiful apple tree. It's the best. What's the one thing that they're going to look around and say? Where are the apples, right? Yeah, oh, this is an apple tree. There's no apples. That's right. So is an apple tree the same sort of thing? Is an apple tree still an apple tree if it doesn't make apples? I mean, genetically speaking, sure. Uh, but I would say it's kind of just a tree at that point, right? It's probably dead. It's probably barren. It's not really functioning anymore. So... I would say that the ability to grow apples is kind of a fundamental part of being an apple tree, just as being able to make tea is a fundamental part of a teapot. Without that ability, uh, the tree is pretty useless and the teapot is pretty useless. 
And I think this is what James is talking about when he says that faith without works is dead, right? If you call yourself a Christian, then I think that good works are an integral, a necessary part of your faith in Jesus. Good works are the fruit of our faith. Without this fruit, we're no better than a barren apple tree or a faulty teapot, right? We're fruitless, we're useless, and we're most likely dead. It's not simply enough to say that we're Christians. We have to function like it as well. Again, we didn't deserve it, but God saved us, and now we work for him, right? Our bottom line for today. There are many different scripture passages that can back this point up, but I've chosen a few to share from uh, the letter that Paul wrote to a pastor uh, in a place called Crete, uh, and his name was Titus. So in chapter 3 of Titus, there's actually a parallel narrative uh, to what we have been talking about this morning in Ephesians. You can find that in verses 3 through 8. Uh, and I'd encourage you at some point uh, this week, look over Titus 3 through 8, or chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, uh, as it has kind of the same ideas. However, I'd like to highlight verse 8 uh, from this chapter in which Paul says this. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And then Paul writes in the same chapter, in, ver or in chapter 14, or verse 14, he says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. You see, we have been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. While those works don't save us, like we already talked about, they're still a major sign of our living faith and our devotion to God. And they are really what we have been created to do, right? So to answer our question that we asked at the very beginning of the day here, our works do matter. Our works do matter. Now this brings me to the final point that we have to discuss this morning, uh, and it's a fascinating point. Uh, that being uh, God's preparation of our works. In verse 10 of our passage, once again, uh, it says the following, uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The last part of this verse tells us that God prepared the works that we're gonna do before we even do them. Essentially, he's laid out a roadmap for us that we just simply have to walk down and follow. Uh, Pastor R. Kent Hughes, a guy I just quoted a couple of minutes ago, uh, he wrote a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. Uh, it's a very instructive book uh, in which he breaks down 17 different areas uh, that godly men need to uh, foster discipline in their lives. Uh, if you've not read it, I would... Um, encourage it. There's also a Disciplines for a Godly Woman that was, I think, written by his wife. Um, so one of the disciplines that he talks about is the discipline of works. In that chapter on work, uh, Hughes has this to say. He says, each of us have an eternally designed work assignment, which includes the task, the ability, and a place to serve. Whatever the task to which he has called you, you will be equipped for it as surely as a bird is made for flight. And in doing the works he has called you to do, uh, you will be both more and more his workmanship 
and more and more your true self. In another, another quote, uh, Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers, uh, in his daily devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, said this about works. He said, we have no right to decide where we should be placed or to have any preconceived ideas as to what God is preparing us to do. God engineers everything, and wherever he places us, our one supreme goal should be to pour out our lives in wholehearted devotion to him in that particular work. We as Christians have a divine calling placed upon our lives. We must identify the work that we are uniquely equipped for and do that work being fully devoted to it. Because again, remember, we didn't deserve it, but God saved us and now we work for him. So where do we go from here, right? I think there's three important steps that we can apply uh, out into our Monday through Saturday lives. And the first one here is to pray, right? So a couple different uh, things. First, if you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, think and pray about what all of this means to you. If you choose to put your faith in Jesus uh, and trust in him, you can leave behind your spiritual deadness instantly uh, and take up new spiritual life in Christ. The choice is yours to make. Really, it's yours alone. Uh, but there's plenty of people in this room, I'm sure, who would help you go through that. Uh, you can find someone near you to talk to. Come up and find me at the end of the service. Uh, but the key is don't leave here today without talking to somebody about it. Now, if you would call yourself a Christian, uh, but are unsure about the work that God is calling you to do or preparing you to do, uh, you should be praying about it, right? Ask God to show you what he would have you do and where he would have you serve and where he would have you work. Uh, and he will show you by making those opportunities available to you. If you already think you're in the proper place, uh, according to God's vision for your life, then pray about that. Pray to confirm that, right? Uh, it might also redirect or refocus your effort. But for all of us, regardless of our situation, we should be praying for a willing heart, right? Whatever works we are called to do, uh, we need to be sure that we're doing them for the right reasons, uh, that being to glorify God uh, and not any personal pride or any boasting that, might, that we might get out of the work. The second piece is to pour, okay? Pray and pour. So pour your time and energy into those individuals and groups placed around you. You can look for small opportunities, maybe to serve your family, your friends, your coworkers, your church this week. Uh, giving your time and energy uh, to something shows that you actually value it, uh, probably more than you could actually value it with money. So make the effort to pour into those around you this week. And then third and finally is to push. Uh, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Now, sometimes it feels like uh, we go to church and we're getting involved and it's just, it just, just doesn't really matter in the long run, right? Because our, our relationship with God is really the most important thing and all the rest uh, doesn't matter. 
Uh, so as long as that relationship is good, you're good, right? I don't think so. Uh, as the passage in Hebrews just said, we do what we do here in our churches really does matter, right? By interacting and connecting and pouring into those around us, uh, we are developing a support system. Uh, we are pushing each other and other people are pushing us uh, to do what we are called to do. Our relationships with fellow Christians are the utmost importance uh, because they challenge us into fully becoming God's workmanship. So push and spur one another on, as is said there in Hebrews, uh, in your church here. Uh, get coffee with somebody and explore how they think that God might be working in their life. Uh, maybe you could join a small group or a ministry that you've not been a part of uh, and see if that's something that you're interested in. Uh, it's something that would definitely push you beyond your comfort zone uh, and maybe introduce you to some new people in the process that you could connect with and encourage. So all those are really practical things. But could you, could you imagine if we actually did this, right? If, if our churches were places where everybody had a group of people, a support system around us that were fully invested in our lives, just as we would be fully invested in theirs, and we'd be pushing each other towards Christ in the process. We'd be doing life together. And that would be what I think would be a living, a breathing work of art. Uh, God's workmanship on display for all of us to see around the area. It can be done. It's not easy. But it can be done through God's grace and provision. But take some time. Take some effort. Uh, so, as I say to my students all the time, right? Get to work. Right, we're going to pray. God, we just uh, thank you for this church. Uh, thank you for this group of people who are living out your word in this area, Lord. Um, I just thank you for the ability to come and speak here today. Uh, I just pray that you would equip them for your work in this region. Uh, may they truly be your hands and feet in this area. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for all that you do and all that you've done for us. In your name.